Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23 is where we're going to be tonight. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. It says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old or under, and according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but in the section we just read, there are three references to Old Testament prophecies. You see there in verse 5, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I've called my son. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And in verse 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. That's what we're going to deal with tonight. When we were last together, we dealt with the whole story of them going to Egypt and coming out of Egypt and the timing of that and that possibility and all that. Tonight, what we're going to do is just look at these three prophecies, because there's actually a lot we can learn from them. As you're going to see all through Matthew, Matthew continues to use Old Testament prophecies to prove that Jesus is the Christ the son of Abraham, the son of David. So what we're going to do tonight, though, is we're going to go back and break down these three Old Testament prophecies. And let's start with the first one there in verse 5. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Go with me to Hosea chapter 11. And we're going to start in verse 1. But I want you to look closely as we do. Because you're going to see that if you or I were to read this prophecy by ourselves in Hosea chapter 11, especially as we continue on and look at the following verses, verses 2 through 12, uh, you will notice that we wouldn't see Jesus in that right away. Let me show you why. In Hosea chapter 11, look at verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And the more they were called, the more they went away. And they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of kindness and with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion when he roars, and his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Now, if you see the full context here, it kind of reads like he's talking about the nation of Israel, especially the northern kingdom, how he called them out of Egypt. And they didn't they walked in disobedience. And but then he says, I'm going to bring judgment. But then he says, shares his heart and says, well, I can't totally destroy them. I have a heart for them and I'm going to restore them in the last days and so on. So most of us would read that and say, I don't see Jesus here. 
I see the nation of Israel, correct? But Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that he that Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 is referring to Jesus because he had gone down when they hid from Herod and then they left there and this was to fulfill when they left Egypt to come back into the into the Israel out of Egypt I called my son and I want you to look closely because if you study prophecy the proper way you'll actually notice something here verse 1 is talking about Jesus verses 2 and following are talking about the nation of Israel especially the northern kingdom Look at the tense in, in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, singular. And out of Egypt, I called my son, singular. The more they were called, the more they went away. Then they kept sacrificing. Yet it was I who taught everyone worked, and I took them by their arms. They did not know. Do you see the difference? Verse 1 is singular. Verse 2 changes to plural. And I want to teach you something that some of you know and some of you, maybe some of you don't know. When it comes to studying prophecy, you have to know how to, as the King James put it, rightly divide the word of God. Because of the fact that when prophecy is written, one verse could be talking about one totally different thing. The very next verse could be talking about something completely different. And most people get messed up when they study prophecy because they try to make it all fit together. And the scripture doesn't always work that way when it comes to prophecy, as I'm going to show you tonight in a little bit. But some people have a hard time with that. They say, Jim, I, I got a real problem with you saying that, well, this verse talks about this and this verse is talking about that. Well, let me give you an example. If you remember, when Jesus went into his hometown of Nazareth, he, he, they handed him, he, he went in to teach and they handed him the scroll of Isaiah. And he unrolled the scroll to what we know of as Isaiah 61. And he read this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. You see it up here on the wall. And he sent me to proclaim captive, uh, claim that captives will be released and the blind will see and that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. But if you go back to Isaiah 61, you'll notice that Jesus stopped reading right in the middle of a verse because the rest of that verse, verse 2 of Isaiah 61 says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. It's very clear in the Hebrew that that sentence wasn't over. He said he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the year of vengeance of our God, the day of vengeance of our God. So let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus stop reading in the middle of the verse, roll up the scroll, sit down to teach and say, this has been fulfilled in your hearing? Why did he stop in the middle of the verse? Oh, he was coming at that time to fulfill the first half of the verse. The day of vengeance of our God's not going to happen for at least now. We know for at least 2000 years. You understand? All right. Do you realize what you just agreed to? You just told me that one half of a verse could be talking about one totally time, different time period. And the second half of the verse can be talking about a totally different time period. Correct? So do we have any problem with verse one referring to Jesus and verse two referring to something different? You shouldn't. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew says to us, this is the fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. 1, Out of Egypt, I called my son. What I want you to see, and I'm going to take some time to walk you through this tonight, is this. That all through the scripture, from Genesis on, God has been pointing to Jesus and giving us little hints and little clues. As he speaks to the nation of Israel, as he gives prophecies to nations throughout, he'll every now and then talk about someone, an individual that was coming. And he does it in ways that if you pay close attention and study closely, you'll say, he can't be talking about a group of people, he must be talking about one person. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 15. God says to Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, when we read that part, we think it means there's going to be enmity between all the descendants of Eve. Correct? Between her offspring. No, look closely. And he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. What appears to be plural is actually singular. When Genesis, uh, Genesis 3.15 is talking about the offspring of the woman, is he talking about us or are you talking about Jesus? 
It's Jesus. You see, it's one person. Go to Genesis 22. You'll see it again. Go to Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, look at verses 15 through 18. This is the story where Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac because God told him to. God stops him when he's about to do it, provides the ram, uh, and then he sacrifices the ram instead. Abraham's already renamed the hill. On this hill the Lord will provide. And look at verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to break down these three offsprings, because as you're going to see from Scripture, the three different terms offspring are actually referring to three different groups. All right. The first one, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, is referring to Isaac. Remember, this is the one he was about to sacrifice. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 15, and you'll see that God uses the exact same words in that situation there. In Genesis chapter 15, look at verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. So here we know in Genesis 22, when he says, Your offspring will be as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore, God already made that promise to him about the child that was going to be born from his own body, which we know is Isaac. By this point in chapter 22, Isaac's been born. He's been living for a while. He goes to sacrifice him. God says, nope, actually, I've seen your heart now because you're not willing to, you're willing to give me your only son. I'm going to make a promise to you. This only son that you have is actually going to make descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. But then he goes on and says, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Go to Genesis chapter 12. This is referring to the nation of Israel. In Genesis chapter 12, because did Isaac ever um, possess the gates of his enemies? Never did. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all lived as strangers and wanderers in the land. They never possessed the land. But in Genesis chapter 12, look at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Talking about the nation of Israel and the people. So he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Go to Genesis chapter 13. Look at verses 14 through 17. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if, if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the Oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and he, there he built an altar to the Lord. So again, God had promised that his offspring, his descendants, the nation of Israel, would be given that land. And as we know, here we see they're going to possess the gates of their enemies. But this third reference to offspring, we've already seen two now. He said again in, in, in verse 17, I'll surely bless you and multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And then it says in verse 18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And I want to show you from Scripture that that term offspring is not referring to the people of Israel. It's referring to Jesus himself. Now, before we go any further, after the lesson last night, this guy came and he said, how come you kept saying that the word offspring could also be singular? Isn't it plural offspring? 
And I'm like, let me ask you a question. If you had one child, is he your offspring? And there he was like, well, yeah. I go, is that one child singular or plural? You see, it can be singular and it can be plural. The word offspring a lot of times can refer to many or it can refer to one. And the scripture tells us that this word offspring, the third one here in Genesis 22, verse 18, is referring to Jesus. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. That's what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance come by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Here we see that Paul shows that when he talks about your offspring in that instance, it's referring to Jesus. It's not plural. It's singular in that instance. Go to Acts chapter 3. It gets even more clear. Go to Acts chapter 3 and look at verses 17 through 26. Now, if you'll stick with me, everything we're going to do tonight is going to lay a foundation to the next, to the next, to the next. Because you're going to find these three prophecies that are referred to in Matthew actually tie together in an interesting way. In Acts chapter 3, look at verses 17 through 26. Peter's preaching now. And look at what he says. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, this individual that we referred to, that's been pointed out, pointed out throughout the prophecies, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Boy, isn't that an awesome passage right there? That Jesus is right now in heaven until when? The time for restoring all the things that the prophets have said. And do you remember from our Ezekiel study and even passages we've already read tonight, there's a time coming when God's going to restore the nation of Israel as the head of all the nations. And all the nations are going to go up and worship the Lord there. And Jesus is going to rule and reign. Folks, Jesus is coming back. That's going to be awesome. Moses said, though, in verse 22, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Who is this offspring that in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. All the families of the earth aren't blessed because of the nation of Israel. All the families of the earth are blessed because the one who came from the nation of Israel, who came from Abraham, and it's Jesus. What I want you to see is that all through the scripture, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, from Revelation all the way back to Genesis, the scriptures are pointing to Jesus. Now, there's a reason why. And I want to talk to you for a second about one of the problems in our church to, churches today. The church today is trying to read themselves into the Bible. How, what's this say to me? And how, how, what's this about me? And I want you to understand, if we're going to be really followers of Christ... Disciples of Jesus will realize that it's always all supposed to be about him and not about us. How many times now have we turned our worship songs instead of singing and praising God for who he is? We sing songs about how he makes us feel. We don't realize it, but we've turned the focus onto us instead of the focus being on him. And I want to show you from Scripture, God's eternal purpose has been to center everything in Jesus. Eternally, it's going to happen. 
One day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is, is the Lord to the glory of the Father. Tongues in earth and tongues in heaven and tongues under the earth, those are in hell. Everybody's going to be acknowledging that it's Jesus is the center of everything. But for those of us who are in Christ, our focus should be focusing on him. Don't you remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36? Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? Who's ever been his counselor? For from him and to him and through him and for him are all things. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see it. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 3 and following. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. How many of us have read those verses before and looked at all the wonderful blessings that are ours? We've been given all these spiritual blessings. But the focus is because we're in Christ. It's because we're in him. And it says very clearly that God's eternal purpose was to center everything. And it's going to happen in eternity in Jesus. And folks, where we're headed tonight and what you need to hear is that if you're going to understand where we're going next in the next two prophecies, you have to be centered and your focus has to be on God through Jesus Christ. Because otherwise... Your flesh, which wants to have the credit, and your flesh, which wants to be God, is going to give you a bellyache when we get to the next verse that we're going to study. Go back to Matthew chapter 2. Go to Matthew chapter 2. Look at verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's go to Jeremiah 31 and take a look at that prophecy there that he's referring to here. The killing of all the babies fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 is where that prophecy is. But in order for you to grasp how it seems to be out of place, but I'm going to show you in a second, isn't, we need to start in verse 10. Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophecy is in verse 15, but we're going to start in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away, Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and he has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. 
Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there's a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Keep that in mind for later on. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Now, Whenever we think about this prophecy and the part of the story where because of Herod and his hatred toward anyone that was going to try to be a king, he then had, when he found out the wise men had tricked him, he had all the babies in Bethlehem and in that whole area, male children, two years old and down, killed. When we hear that and we think about it, we go, well, that's not fair for those children. We feel bad for those mothers. And many of us, and I'm going to be honest with you, even Christians say things like this. How could a loving God allow that? Where was God? Let me just say something real quick before we go on. Be careful when you go down that road. Because whenever you start to question God's goodness, you are actually climbing a ladder in which you set yourself up above him. And you become his judge. What you're really saying when you say, how could a loving God allow that to happen? What you're really saying is, if I were God, I wouldn't have done it that way. Well, by the way, isn't that the first sin that started this whole mess? Where Satan came to Adam and Eve and said, he knows that if you eat from that tree, you get to be like him. You get to decide right and wrong, good and evil. And folks, I'm going to tell you, the scripture's clear. You're going to see it later tonight. God is holy. He is just. He is perfect in all his ways. Would you not agree? Does he do anything wrong? Then we have to understand that even though this seems in our eyes to be a horrible thing that's happened, and all these women that lost their children and all, we say, how could God, why did God, we have to humble ourselves and say, he has a purpose and it's right. By the way, I think we get a little hint in this passage that those babies will be in the millennial kingdom. Do you see it? Then your children shall come back to their own country. You know how the Bible teaches that when David's child was put to death by God because of David and Bathsheba's sin, and he prayed that God would spare the child, but God said no. And then he got out and he took a bath and he had some food and they're like, what are you doing? He goes, look, the child will never come to me again, but I will go to him. He knew he'd see that child again. And I believe the Bible teaches without question that babies that are born and die, babies that are conceived and killed in the womb, will be in eternity because they are eternal souls. And by God's grace, the Bible teaches that there's such a thing as an age of accountability, and it's different for everybody. Don't try to figure out what age it is. But it's obvious from the scriptures that the Bible shows that once you realize your sin and you realize your guilt, now you're accountable for it. Jesus even said that to the Pharisees. Now that you say that you have no sin, you're guilty. Because you understand right and wrong and you think you're okay. And the Bible teaches there is such a thing as an age of accountability. And even though all those babies died, they will be a part of what he does when he restores Israel. Now, some of us say, well, what about this life? That's the problem. We still think it's about this life. It's not. It's not. This is a short time period. It's brief, the scripture says, in which God is using this for his glory to set up things for eternity. But I'm going to ask you a question. Why was Herod still even in power over them? We think about these babies that were killed by Herod, but has anybody ever thought about this? Why was the nation of Israel in their land, but they weren't in charge of their land? Why was Herod even in power? God's sovereign will, but why was it God's sovereign will? I'm sorry? 
Discipline. I'm sorry? Yeah, because they were still in disobedience. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. See, we lose sight of this fact and we miss something here in this whole story. Because again, we try to look at everything with our eyes and, well, that doesn't seem right and that doesn't seem fair. But God all along has explained Here's If you do this, I'll do that. If you do this, I'll do that. All along, it's been that way. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and look at verses 15 through 20. He said, see, I have set before you today life and good. This is the nation of Israel right before they go into the promised land. They've already wandered for the 40 years. Moses is about to be done. Joshua is about to take over. They're about to go into the promised land. And God says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God and by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, you will not hear but are drawn, your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life in length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Jump over to, or back to chapter 28. Look at verses 1 through 14. We won't cover all those. I'm just going to hit a couple. Look at chapter 28, verse 1. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, and the increase of your herds, and the young flock. Blessed shall be your young, sorry, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. By the way, do you hear all these blessings God said? If you obey me and do what I say, I'm going to bless you. Go to Deuteronomy 31. Look at verses 16 through 22. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and will whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they're entering, and they'll forsake me and break my covenant that I've made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I'll forsake them and hide my face from them, and they'll be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them. So they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil they have done because they have turned to other gods. Now, let me just stop and set you up the stage here. God had said to them, look, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your womb. I'm going to bless your crops. You're going to be in the land. He even in one place said, you're going to be the head, not the tail. You're going to be in charge. But the opposite, and I could take you to all those passages. If you don't obey, what happens I'm going to remove you from the land. I'm going to bring judgment on you. Remember when we did our Ezekiel study and we saw all the judgment of God because of their idolatry and worshiping other gods in the temple and all the things they were doing and how God said, you're going to eat your own children because you're going to be so hungry and, and I'm going to do this. And we, when we read Ezekiel, we're like, well, God's being just, God's being fair. God's doing what he said he would do. But we don't realize that even though the nation of Israel was taken into captivity, eventually they were set free from that captivity. Most of the people stayed in Babylon. They were like, no, we kind of like it here. There were few, a small percentage that went back to the land of Israel. They rebuilt the temple. It was smaller, but they rebuilt it. And never from that time on did they ever have a king over them. They were always under some other nation, which shows us that God's judgment was still on them. The discipline of the Lord was still there. And the reason why Herod has the freedom to kill all these babies is because Israel's still in disbelief and Israel's still in judgment. You want proof? You think, well, no, they have the temple now and they're doing their sacrifices. Yeah, yeah God himself showed up. And what'd they do to him? They killed him. Were they a people that were after God? Oh, they're after their own hearts and their own ways. Folks, don't lose sight of the fact that the babies were all killed for many reasons, but one of them is the fact that Israel's still under judgment 
Herod is in charge, not God. Well, actually, God is. But he's allowed this to go on because he said, if you disobey, here's what I'm going to let happen. And it's interesting. He says to Moses, as we just read here in chapter 31, oh, by the way, I've given them these blessings and these curses. I've given them these choices. Um, Moses, let me tell you what they're going to do. I already know. And I'm going to turn my back on them for a season. I'm not going to take you through the whole of it, but go to chapter 32. Moses then is told by God to write this song. Have you ever noticed that you can remember, remember things better if it's in the song? Have you ever noticed there are old lyrics that we can just pull up because tied to the music? I don't know what the music of this was, but God told Moses to write this song. It's called the Song of Moses. And in chapter 32, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I would love for you to go home by yourself and sit down, read it slowly, and bring a piece of paper or a notepad and write down some of the things God shows you because the entire history of the nation of Israel is given in this song. How they started, what's going to happen. It talks about the church age in the song, and it talks about the tribulation period and the millennial kingdom. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, look at verse 1. Give, give ear, O heavens, and I'll speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. By the way, I think it's important that we get that in our hearts when our flesh wants to say, how could a loving God? We need to keep that in mind. Jump over to verse 21. Paul shows us this is talking about the church age. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I'll provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. But jump down to verse 36. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there's none remaining, bond or free, then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge? Where is the who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven, and I swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy." Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and he takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Go back and look at it later on yourself. You will see Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses, the whole history. God already knew what was all going to happen. He lays it out for the nation of Israel. But I want to bring something else out before we go to our last prophecy tonight. When Herod was killing all those babies... What else was happening at the exact same time? We get so focused on the killing of the babies, we miss something. Why were all the babies killed? Because of the one promised in Genesis 3.15. The one promised in Genesis 22. The one promised, the prophet that Moses talked about. The Christ, the Messiah, the one that God, even though he kept saying, because of your sin, because of your disobedience, I'm going to do this. And you're going to go through time of suffering. Didn't all of those prophecies also have with it? I'm going to turn your mourning into joy. I'm going to give you beauty for ashes, it says in Isaiah 61, right after that passage there, verse 3 goes on and verse 4 goes on and talks about to give you beauty for ashes. All the way through in Hosea chapter 11, as he talked about the wickedness of Ephraim and Israel, he then says, but doesn't my heart go out after them? I'm going to restore them. In uh, Jeremiah 31, as he talks about the judgment on Israel and how there was going to be this bitter weeping because the children are going to be killed. He then also gives the prophecies and the promise about his restoration through this one that he's provided. Folks, don't miss this. Yes, horrible things were happening because of their sin. But at the same time, God was working out his promise to restore through that one. And he was doing a mighty work. That's important, by the way, when we go now to our 
last prophecy. Go back to Matthew chapter 2. Look at verse 22. When, when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophet, prophets, plural, might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this is one of the most interesting prophecies to go study because if you try to go find where the prophecies say he would be born in Nazareth, or not born, but come from Nazareth, you will never find it. But does the prophecy say that he would be coming from Nazareth? What does the prophecy say? He would be called a Nazarene. Now, I'm going to show you this in Scripture, but let me explain it to you this way. When I grew up in Milton, New Hampshire, a little town uh, uh, in, in the southeast corner of New Hampshire, there was a town right next to us, which was the, our arch rival in schools, and we just considered it the armpit of New Hampshire. We actually called Farmington, the next town over, the armpit of New Hampshire. Anybody that was from Farmington was poor and despised. Actually, years ago, uh, I don't know how many of you know the geography of uh, Georgia, but there's a town in Georgia called Adel, Georgia. And right next to Adel, Georgia, is another town called Sparks. And one day I was in college at Flagler College in St. Augustine, and this guy next door to me was from Adel, Georgia. I said, tell me about Adel. What's it like? He said, Adel is so close to hell you can see Sparks. All right? I was talking about this last night, and someone says, yeah, it's like Mims. You know what I'm saying? And so there are areas that you just don't want to be from. You know what I'm saying? Because they're despised. You're from there? And the fact that he went and lived in a town called Nazareth and was raised in Nazareth in Galilee began a rejection of Jesus that started from his hometown that I'm going to show you the prophets had said he would be called a Nazarene or the prophets said he would be rejected and despised. Go to John chapter 1. Look at verses 43 through 46. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Do you see it? The town is despised. It's the armpit of Israel. Go to John chapter 7. Look at verses 40 through 52. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. They didn't understand the prophet and the Christ were the same person. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him in? And his, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, one of the Pharisees, one of the leaders there, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? See the insult? Are you from that despised area as well? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. By the way, this shows you how much the Pharisees knew their Bibles. Jonah was from Galilee. A prophet did come out of Galilee. But they hated Jesus so much, they were rejecting him. Remember, the prophets said that he would be called a Nazarene. Go with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Look at verses 1 through 6. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For, there it is again, he grew up before him like a young plant, 
and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And we all like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Remember when the Ethiopian eunuch was sitting there in the chariot, and he's reading this passage, and God tells Philip to go over to the chariot, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, Help me, sir. Is Isaiah talking about himself or somebody else? Because it's obvious this is an individual that's being referred to here. And then Philip was able to show them from the scriptures that that he was prophesied by Isaiah about Jesus. Go ahead. Because in the mind of God, it's all happened already. How could God say to Moses, oh, by the way, here's what they're going to do. Not just because he knows them that well. He's already seen it. How could Jesus tell Peter, yeah, you think you're going to die for me? And actually you will, but it'll be like 25 years from now. But actually right now, you're going to deny you even know me three times before the rooster crows. You have to understand, God is outside of time, and it's already all happened in the mind of God. The Bible actually describes in the book of Revelation, Jesus as the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. But the prophecy is for us. Yes. It's for us and for the, for the nation of Israel. It's for, every, it's for everybody. It's for the Jews. It's for everybody. We haven't what? Yet. Here's the hard part. Yes, it had. Even though it hadn't happened in time, it already had happened. That's why Abraham can be given righteousness because of his faith in God's provision for his sin. Abraham didn't know who it was, but he knew that God was going to provide. My son, the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice. You understand? All the way through the Old Testament, people were saved through faith. They didn't know it was Jesus, but they had faith in Jesus. The Bible had been pointing through the sacrificial system to God's provision for their sin. The whole point of it was to point to what Jesus was going to do, but had already done in the mind of God. You understand? There's, there's a depth here. That if the only way you get it is if the Spirit helps you grasp these truths. We're going to get to that in just a second. But here the prophecy said that he would be a Nazarene. Despised. Go to Psalm 22. One of my favorite passages to show how prophecy jumps around. But we have the benefit of being on this side of the cross, and that's what you're talking about. We have a wonderful benefit of being on this side of the cross. In Genesis 22, look at verses 18. Sorry, did I say Genesis? Sorry, Psalm, thank you. Psalm 22, look at verses 6. Psalm 22, starting in verse 6. I'm going to read verses 6 through 18, and tell me if things don't sound a little familiar. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. By the way, if you go and read the crucifixion story, that's word for word what the people were saying while he was hanging on the cross. Yet you are he who who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. By the way, you're going to know if you go back and study Psalm 22 that this is a a psalm that was written by David. Was he talking about himself or somebody else? The answer is both. Look at Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? 
Oh my God, I cry out by day and you don't answer, and by night and I find no rest. Yet you're holy and thrown on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and they trusted and were not put to shame. If you keep reading the whole chapter, you're going to realize David's writing about himself sometimes, and other times through the Spirit, he's writing about something else. If you were alive at the time, David wrote this, and he'd say, Hey, this is the latest song I wrote. And he sings it to you on his harp or whatever it is he's playing. And you'd say, David, <laughs> sounds like you had a bad day, first off. Second of all, when did they pierce your feet and your hands? When have they cast lots for clothing? Everybody doesn't mock you. They're not all mocking you. And all David could say is, I don't know who that's referring to, but God had me write it. You see, prophecy has been given so that when we know it in our hearts and then it takes place, the Spirit can go and say, that's what I was talking about. See, we try to read prophecy to figure it all out. There are some things that are revealed. Others, we have to wait until they happen. What does the book of Revelation say in chapter 1? Blessed are those who read the word aloud of these prophecies and take to heart what is written. We know some of it because the Scripture has shown us but when the rest of it happens, people will be able to say, that's what he was talking about. I could go on and show you in Mark chapter 9. You can write it down, look at it later on yourself. Mark chapter 9, verses 9 through 12, Jesus talks to the disciples as he's coming down from the mountain. And he says, they're going to reject me and do to me all the things that the prophecy said. He was rejected. He was despised. By the way, he still is today, isn't he? Isn't it interesting how Jesus... His name is a swear word. Isn't that sad? How many people use Jesus' name as a cuss word? He's despised and rejected. But it's not too late. It's not too late. I, you could go and look. I'm going to do something as we close in the last six minutes we have left here. If you were to look yourself in Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 12, Paul, Peter talks about how he was rejected, but he is the one in which we can be saved. He's the only name in which we can be saved. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12, talks about how he's the chief cornerstone, but he's also the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What I want to do in the time we have left is to talk to you a little bit about ways that people are offended by Jesus. And I want to caution you not to fall into these groups. You know, Jesus actually said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 6, and we'll get there in a little bit in our study of Matthew, he said, blessed is he who's not offended by me. Who's not offended by me. In other words, blessed is he who's not offended by how I run my world. Go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, look at verses 53 through 58. Some people are offended by Jesus because they think he's just a man and he has no right to claim to be God. Matthew chapter 13, look at verses 53 through 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and his own household. And he didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Some people are offended by Jesus because he says he's God. Other people are offended by Jesus because he messes with their religious traditions. Chapter 15 of Matthew, just jump over to chapter 15. Look at verses 7 through 14. Jesus says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. By the way, let me just say real quickly, the Bible teaches that we're to watch out for false teachers, but the Bible doesn't say that we're to go root out the false teachers. You ever notice that? We're to watch for them and to be careful and be, not be sucked in by their false teaching, 
But the Bible also says, leave them alone. God will deal with them. You follow the Lord. Didn't Jesus say that he'll build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it? Remember how Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I know that after I leave, savage wolves are going to come in among you and try to destroy the flock. Now I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance. He didn't say, go find them and get rid of them. He said, put your eyes on God. Put your eyes on God. Some people are offended because you don't, they don't understand everything he says and does. Go to chapter 6 of John real quick. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 62. John 6, verse 60. Jesus had just said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Let me ask you a question. Does anybody here fully understand everything Jesus does and says? We've already touched on the fact that we've been tempted over the years to look at that story of all those babies being killed and say, how could a loving God? Be careful. Be careful. Because it's easy for us to sit back in our religious mindset and say, the world rejects and despises Jesus. You got that same flesh in you, even though you've been redeemed in your spirit, your flesh gets up every day and wants to climb back on the throne of your life. You want it to be about you. The church today is being overrun with teaching and preaching that makes being a Christian about us. Dominion theology is rampant in our churches where people saying you can have power and authority now and you can be a millionaire and you can be an overcomer and we love that stuff that feeds our flesh. Are we willing to say as Job, even if he slays me, yet will I trust him? His purposes are for eternity. We love to quote Romans 8, 28 and how God will cause all things to work for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But a lot of us forget the fact that the context of that whole passage is we may not see the good or the good purposes until eternity. Go with me as we close tonight to Romans chapter 8. We love to look at the fact that we're co-heirs with Christ but there's a caveat in that passage that most people have never, ever quoted when they talk about co-heirs with Jesus. Romans chapter 8, look at verses 12 through 18. Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit. You see, it's a capital S in your Bibles. The Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Look closely. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Second Timothy chapter two says, if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. How many Christians today talk about how we're going to reign with Jesus? Uh, no, only those who are willing in this life to lay down their plans and their designs and let it all be centered in Jesus. Why are we willing to have everything be centered on Jesus in eternity but you're not willing to let it be centered on him now. And what did God say as we read there in Deuteronomy? I kill and I make alive. I do as I please. I want to encourage you and caution you at the same time. In the days that we have left, practice putting your flesh on the altar. It's your reasonable service. It's your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, which is me first. But renew your minds. Renew your minds and lay your flesh, lay your bodies as living sacrifices. And say, Lord, you do everything perfect. And for those who fully trust you, you may even prune them, but you have a purpose. And even if I don't see the purpose, I trust that there is one. And even though I don't understand why, I believe that you are holy and right and just and good, as we've seen tonight. 
and I trust you even though I don't understand. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were standing before the king in a fiery furnace. And the king said, is your God able to rescue you from this flame? And their answer is awesome. They said, he's able. Whether he will or not, we don't know. But it doesn't make a difference. We're not going to bow down. I want to encourage you. Don't be offended by Jesus and let him run his world the way he wants to. I love you. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for coming.